In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 16. In chapter 15, our Lord Jesus Christ showed clearly to us the love of God through three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. But this awesome love has to be met from our side with love and wisdom. God created us in his own image, and he gave us a perfect free will. And we should, by our own free will, accept this fellowship with God. And we use our wisdom and our intellect to understand that one day we will give an account of our stewardship. So we need, we need to be ready for that day. That's why the Lord in this chapter offered a parable and a real story that urged us to accept his fellowship by our own free will and also to be ready to give an account of our stewardship in our life. The parable is the parable of the dishonest, dishonest manager or dishonest steward. And the story is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. In this, in this parable and story, we have teaching about the use and abuse of the money and wealth, and also about the accountability and the judgment in the last day. The parable and the story are separated by four verses in which God condemned the Pharisees for their love of money. And he gave a quick teaching about the law. So the focus of the final teaching about wealth and money is the inevitable rich, sorry, inevitable judgment of the rich if they lack compassion on the poor. If they abused their wealth rather than using their richness for the glory of God. So the outline of the chapter from verse 1 to 13, the parable of the unjust steward. From 14 to 18, the teaching of the Lord about the law, the prophet, and the kingdom. Then from 19 to 31, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So let's start from verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him 
that this man was wasting his goods. So, the Lord now wants us to see that it is the duty of the sinners in their repentance and in their return to the Father's house to be well equipped with wisdom. In chapter 15, we read about the parable of the prodigal son and how this son returned to his father's house in great repentance, regret, and wisdom. In this chapter, he used also the example of the unjust steward, how he prepared for the day of judgment in wisdom. So he's speaking to us about the charity and the love of giving as faithful steward appointed in charge by God himself. As a steward, if God gave us money, we are steward. In order to use this money to distribute it to the poor and the needy wisely, to make friends for us by this mammon. So we must make friends from what God had granted us. This rich man is clearly a noble of high rank. And most probably his residence was far from his estates. That's why he appointed a manager, a steward, administrator to manage his estates. But this steward was unfaithful and wasted the revenues of the master. As many of us as stewards, we waste the revenue of our master, our Lord and God. This steward appeared to be careless, dishonest servant. So the owner of the estates, when he became aware of the facts of the case, at once he gave notice of dismissal to the steward desiring that he may resign and to give in all the accounts. As we read in verse 2, So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. You can no longer be steward. This unjust steward represent primarily the Pharisees and the scribes in their teaching and in, this, in their ministry. They were dishonest, unfaithful. The scribes and Pharisees attended and heard this parable. 
But in verse 1, we read that the Lord addressed this parable to his disciples. Why? Why St. Luke did not say he addressed it to the scribes and the Pharisees? Because the disciples also are called the steward, collectively and individually. And they should know from the beginning of their ministry that they will give an account of their stewardship. So the rich man can represent God and the steward represent all of us. And we should know that all of us will stand before God at the last day and will give an account of our stewardship. Not only will give account not only about the money that God gave us, but will give account regarding our time, our talents, our substance, our gifts, our service in the church, our children, everything in our life. So, give an account of your stewardship. These are words that every one of us will hear, both unrepentant and repentant. All will give account in some way or another to God at the last day. Verses 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. When the steward knew that he would be called to account, he knew his poor management would be exposed to the master. And he is admitting and cannot deny his guilt. For he sees his dismissal as the certain result of the rendering of the account demanded of him. Because of his dishonesty, that's why he will be terminated. All of us, we know that one day we will die. Are we going to ask ourselves the same question? What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me when I die. And in the life to come, we cannot dig and we cannot beg. He knew that other options were unsuitable for him. He was too weak to dig, too proud to beg. So... He started to prepare for this day very carefully and very anxiously. Now he had a plan. As we read in verse 4, I have resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Do we have a plan for this day, the day of judgment? He has a plan. I have resolved what to do. 
So this steward, knowing he would be called to account, used his present position to prepare himself for the next stage of his life. In the same way, we should use what we have right now, what is in our stewardship right now, to prepare ourselves when we stand before God. Verse 5. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write it. So he called the debtors one by one, not all of them together. These debtors, some of them were farmers who paid the rent in substance like wheat or oil and others who got supplies of good from the master's stores. So what was his plan? He planned to make friends with his master's debtors by settling their account for less than they actually owed. So the first one he told him, how much do you owe? He said 100, told him, write down 50. The other told him 100, told him, write down 80. There are many interpretation of his action. Some are saying he was tempting the debtors with immediate gain and making them sharers in his fraud. And he took the easiest way to secure them to be on his side and to secure their silence because now they are sharers in his fraud. This actually was the conduct of the Pharisees. Instead of insisting on the teaching of God, they start actually to twist the teaching to please the people. Let me give you some examples. The Qurban teaching. They released men from their obligation of honoring their parents. If they paid some offering to the temple. So they reduced the requirement of the law for them. As if they give them immediate gain. Or they made them lie under oath 
uh, and they made different uh, distinction of the oath. For example, if you uh, if you swear by Jerusalem, it's different than swearing by God. So you can swear by Jerusalem and lie. It's acceptable. You can swear by the temple, but not the gold of the temple. You can swear by the altar, but not on the sacrifice on the altar. So they made some, or give them some permissions, as if immediate gain. Also, they give a white approval to lust by their doctrine of divorce. They allowed the divorce for so many reasons. That's why God, actually after this parable, he spoke about divorce. And many people ask, what is the link between the teaching about divorce in verse, uh, same chapter, verse uh, 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her own, her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Many people say they believe that these verses is in, uh, this verse about divorce is inserted outside the context. No. It is within the context. You compromise what we owe to God. Just making the commandment much easier to please the people. And in this way they were dishonest to God, to their master. Also they substituted the paying tithe of mint and skimmon for the whitier matter of the law. Just pay the tithe of these things and it's okay. Forget the mercy and the justice, the whitier ma matters of the law. So here the Lord told them, this one, he made friends from the debtors of his master by giving them immediate gain. And unfortunately, until now, we may make friends here on earth by diluting the commandment of God or reducing the, our responsibility toward God. Yes, you can make friends here on earth and you can make your followers plenty here on earth, but not in heaven. So this master, in verse uh, 8, so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. This verse is one of the most difficult verse, verses. 
why he commended him. He was unjust, unfaithful. But this parable is speaking about a story here on earth. So this man wants to make friends so these people may receive him in their houses after he is terminated. So he planned for his future. He planned for his future. So the rich man here, in the outer framework of the story, he saw that this man dealt shrewdly. So he admired the sharpness and the quickness of the steward's action to secure a future for himself. So we ought to look to the figurative meaning of the whole parable and not to the individual parts and verse by verse. Uh, But there is another interpretation about reducing the money from uh, 100 to 80 or 100 to 50. At that time, the stewards actually, they used to add additional revenue to the bill that the person or the debtor owed the masters. So probably the steward was not cheating by dropping the sum of each creditor or debtor. But he was simply reducing his commission or eliminating his commission completely. So maybe at this point in his life, he realized that to get the gratitude of these debtors and their friendship, more important and more valuable than to get the money. So he reduced completely his commission in order to make friends. For this wisdom, the master commended him. Then the Lord said, for the sons of this world, are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Sons of the world make plans. We have saving plan, we have retirement plan, we have life insurance. So we make plans. But when it comes to our eternal life, we don't have plans. So the Lord said the sons of this world, more wise, bold, forward, That's why he said they are more shrewd than the the people of God, than the sons of light. Sons of light, people of God. Because we don't make plan for eternal life. So the master did not praise the steward unfaithfulness. But he praised 
how he planned his wisdom, his thinking about his future. And how to win friends who will help him in his hour of need. So this unjust steward actually was a good example on several points. Like what? Number one, he knew he would be called to account for his life. And he took that seriously. In the same way, we should take seriously the idea that all of us will be called to account. The idea, actually, that will stand and give an account is a joyful for those who are faithful in their life. Second lesson from this unjust steward. He took advantage of his present position to arrange a comfortable future. And we need actually to take advantage of our current and contemporary situation to secure our heavenly inheritance. That's why the Lord said the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. If we pursue the kingdom of God with the same passion, zeal, that the children of this world pursue profits and pleasure, would live an entirely different life than what we are living right now. St. Augustine made a comment. He said, from another point, this parable was said, so we realize that if this manager who acted deceitfully has been able to achieve praise. So this one, the unjust steward, was able to get praise. How much more will it be with those that please God in carrying out his commandments in their actions? Definitely they will be praised by God. Also, St. Cyril the Great has a very, very interesting comment here. He said, when the Lord Jesus Christ presents a parable, he doesn't mean for us to apply it from all aspects, but rather from the aspect that God wanted and meant. So take the parable as a whole and see what is the morale in this parable, what the message in this parable. Sincere continues and says, Likewise, it is not appropriate for us to follow the example of this manager in his carelessness of the property money, not in his cheating of the documents. We rather have to follow his example only in keeping our wisdom and our vision of eternity. Verse 9, Now the Lord is making comment on this parable. He said, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous man, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. The Lord several times 
use the word I say unto you. So, I say unto you, which is in contrast with what you heard in this parable. So, he reminded us that we need to use our present resources to plan ahead for eternity. What is unrighteous mammon? Unrighteous mammon is the money that we have it right now. Because the whole world under curse and corruption since the fall of Adam and Eve. So anything we have right now is considered unrighteous. Money in itself and riches promise much but perform nothing. Riches is still hope and confidence but they deceive us. Riches make us depend on them for happiness, but they rob us from the salvation of God and eternal glory. That's why it's called unrighteous mammon. That's why God described the mammon as unjust and deceitful. But we are called to use this mammon to make friends. That when you fail means when you are dismissed from being the steward of God's position, meaning when we die. So the right use of our wealth is to help the poor, to make them in a better condition, lead them to repentance, lead them to return back to God, in this way, we will gain friends. And these friends are those whom we have helped. But who will receive us could be the angels of God who rejoices over one sinner that repents, could be the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who will receive us into everlasting home. St. John Chrysostom says, if you serve the saints, that is the poor, then you will share them in their reward. St. Ambrose says, by giving the poor, we obtain the pleasure of the angels and all other saints. Verse 10, he who is faithful in what's least, is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what's least is unjust also in much. So in verse 10, the Lord make it very clearly that money is considered to be one of the least things. The most which we can have in this world is least. Compared to the smallest gift of heaven. So all the riches of the world is considered least if you compare it with the smallest gift in heaven. So here we have the rule. 
by which God will decide about our eternal future. If you are faithful in managing these unimportant things, what's least, then you will be entrusted with far more important things which belong to the eternal life. The faithful in what's least will be acknowledged as a faithful steward and will be appointed on what's much. Part of this faithfulness that we should not act as possessors, owners, but we understand we are steward and we'll give an account of our stewardship. So, the conduct of this steward, understanding he's just a steward, not the owner, that's why he was considered wise. And we are instructed to imitate his wisdom only by being, preparing for eternal life, how? By being faithful. So imitate him in wisdom, not in his unfaithfulness. Imitate him only in his wisdom, not in his unfaithfulness. We should be faithful. So if you make that use of your riches, which I have been recommending, you shall be received into those everlasting homes where all the friends of goodness dwell because of your faithfulness in managing the smallest trust of temporal things. So when you are faithful in managing the smallest trust of temporal things committed to your care, then God will entrust you with the greater trust of the spiritual uh, inheritance and heavenly things. Then the Lord said, verse 12, verse 11, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? As we said, all this money here is considered unrighteous. But the riches in heaven, our inheritance, that is the true riches. So if you are unfaithful here, how can God entrust us with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful on what is another man's, who will give you what's your own? So we should know that earthly blessings are from God. And from these blessings, we are required to care for the poor and the disadvantaged. And if we cannot be trusted in the matters of sharing our earthly wealth, then God is asking how God will trust us with the true riches of eternal life. Also, the Lord here refers to the fact that all riches belonging to God we are just managing his resources. 
But faithfulness in managing the resources of God here on earth will result in a blessing that in eternal life we will receive what is our own, your inheritance. As he said, who will give you what is your own? Here we have a very magnificent promise. Although on earth man actually possesses nothing of his own, but here on earth we are just stewards, nothing more. But if we are found faithful and trustworthy on what we have on earth, then in the life to come, something will be given to us and will be truly our own. In heaven there is no dismissal or death. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he hates the one and loves the other. Or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. So God is saying here, serving two masters is impossible. If you think that you can successfully serve God and Mammon, trust God and Mammon in the same time, you are deceived. You can have both God and Mammon, but you cannot serve both. Again, you can have both, but you cannot serve both. Serve both means making both of them your God. And by the way, these verses is not only about the rich, because the poor also can be slave to the love of money. The poor have the same potential for greed as the rich. So you cannot worship money in the same way worship God. The two calling oppose each other. Because the love of money will turn money into a false God, trusting in money. To be dependent on riches is opposed to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, who wants us to be totally dependent on Him. And this is actually one of the three characteristics of our discipleship. Deny yourself, carry your cross, sell what you have. That's why when he sent the disciples to them, don't carry silver or gold or money bags. Verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard, heard all these things, and they dreaded him. So, this means the Pharisees were listening and they heard the previous parable. So although this parable was addressed to the disciples, but also it was addressed to the Pharisees. The word dreaded means 
visible despise. So it implies visible rather than audible signs of despise. This word expresses the clear appearance of contempt. The derision of the Pharisees who based their own self was based on the, uh, their own self-interest because they were lover of money. So why they despised him? Why the Pharisees despised him? Because they were lovers of money. Many times we reject the message of our Lord Jesus Christ because it, it hits my weakness. That's why I don't want to hear it. The Pharisees rejected and despised what he said about their injustice and their stewardship. They despised what he said that, that they will be called to give account for their stewardship. Also, they despised the teaching about the use of the worldly riches. All these things actually made them despise his teaching. They perceived themselves as safe and secure. And they were, they were highly esteemed by the people. And they were happy in enjoying the worldly pleasures and luxury. And they looked at Jesus Christ as a weak man. That's why in verse 15, the Lord said to them, and he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God knows that they are living to the world, but they are dead to God and to goodness. They men pleasers. That's why he told them, those who are highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And the Lord said, God knows your hearts, but God knows your heart. These words, God knows your heart, is comfort to many people. But for some people, it can be very scary. Then the Lord told them, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. So, the, the Lord indicated here that the ministry of John the Baptist marked the end of one era of God's work, the era of the Old Covenant. That's why he said, since that time, the time of John's ministry, now there is good news of the New Covenant is presented to them with an order that's different than the law of Moses. 
the law must be fulfilled. So Jesus came to fulfill the law on our behalf. And then when we are baptized and joined the, joined the Lord Jesus Christ, in him we considered fulfilling the law of Moses. We join what was promised by Moses and the prophets is coming to fulfillment. So the Lord told them, you are highly esteemed among men and justify yourselves based on the law of Moses. That actually keep the external justification. But you rejected the ministry of John the Baptist. And you rejected the new covenant. And you rejected the Messiah. That's why, how can you justify yourself? You cannot be justified by the works of the law. Now justification is by and only by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the link. Why, how he switched from you justify yourself, the law and the prophet. You cannot be justified by the law and the prophets. The kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier, verse 17, for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. It doesn't mean that now there is a new covenant that the law of Moses has ceased. No. But the law of Moses prepared for the new covenant. And the new covenant is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. So, as if what is least, the law, stops with the advent of what's better. Therefore, the Lord is saying to them, don't seek to please men, but let us take by force the kingdom of God. What does it mean take it by force? To be dedicated, to be serious, to be willing to sacrifice and risk all for the sake of the kingdom. To have passion to see the kingdom of the Messiah. To fight the good fight. St. Ambrose says, For taking by violence in the faith is righteousness, and being called is sin. So he's saying, when you are righteous, this means you are taking it by force. But you, if, you, if you are called no zeal, this is sin. St. John Chrysostom says, he is preparing them to have faith in him. Because when the time of John has come, all matters have been fulfilled. I am he who has come. The Lord said one title of the law will not fail. Mean, lest anyone says 
that the law and the prophets are no longer, no any more use of them, that's why he said no. Even one title of the law will not fail. And when the Lord said we must press ourselves into the kingdom, this doesn't mean rebellion, but rather it is submission and obedience to God. I force my will to be submissive to God. I force myself to be obedient to God. That's why he told them uh, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one title of the law to fail. And he gives them example in verse 18. God created Adam and Eve, created them from the beginning too. And he said, the two shall become one. And what God has joined, no one should put asunder. That's why he said, I will give an example. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her her, who is divorced by her husband commits adultery. So, the law concerning marriage is still binding. No matter how some rabbis try to explain it or give permission for divorce. So, this verse illustrates to us the spirit of the Pharisees. They were hypocrite. They prof- pro- professed reference to the law and prophets. But actually their teaching was different. Teaching about divorce was different. They lowered the sacredness of the marriage. They lower the sacredness of the family. And they give permission. And they loosen the morals of the people. That's exactly what the unjust steward made when he called the debtors and reduced their bill. How much do you owe? 100, write it 80. 100, write it 50. So the Lord actually was warning them from this attitude. Let's stop here at verse 18, because another section will start from verse 19. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.